Take your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. Now, um, as we were, as we start this series, or kind of continue this series, excuse me, we're going to look today at another one of those kind of amazing stories where Daniel shows up and influences people for God in a society that had gone completely mad. And to do that, I want to start by talking about a guy who many of you probably don't think of when you think of Daniel. This is who I want to talk about for a minute. Anybody know who that is? That's Denzel, right? We're on first name basis. Y'all didn't know that? Denzel and I? Dens? I call him Dens. Dens? Nobody calls him Dens, I don't think. Denzel, been a two-time Academy Award winning, great movies like Glory, Book of Eli, one of my all-time favorite movies. Remember the Titans, you know, Herman Boone and that. Unbelievable guy. But you may not know this about Denzel Washington. Denzel Washington has fought all his life not to become a preacher. He's wanted to be a preacher. He's talked about being a preacher. In fact, there's a movie that many of you probably didn't see because I don't think many people saw it called The Book of Eli that came out years ago. And uh, I'm going to spoil the movie because if you haven't seen it by now, you're not going to see it, all right? But in The Book of Eli, they are protecting this book and it's this book that they've got to get to and protect and you find out it's the Bible. Denzel was speaking recently at a, a graduation in New Orleans, Louisiana, at a, a college called Dillard University. And um, this is what he said. This is how he started his whole talk. After he talked about the fact that he almost flunked out of college, that he had a 1.7 GPA, he said, here's my advice to you. Put God first in everything you do. He said, everything I have, I have a lot, honestly, Everything I have is a gift of God. It's a gift. And I didn't always stick with him, but he stuck with me. And he talked about what led him to kind of later in life go back to his faith. And he talked about his mom a lot. And he said when he was first making it as an actor, he came home one day and he said, Mom, can you believe this? Would you have ever believed that I would do what I've been doing? It's unbelievable all that I've gotten accomplished. I cannot believe that I'm acting in this movie. And she said, wait, wait, wait a minute. What's all this I stuff? She said, I tell you what you can do all by yourself. You can go out and get a mop and bucket and clean those windows. You can do that by yourself. But you hadn't done anything by yourself. She said, Denzel, when you say that you've accomplished it, you discount all the people I know that have been praying for you since the day you left. And not a single thing you've accomplished is because of you. Isn't it good for moms to humble us sometimes? Right? You know what my grandmother used to tell me all the time? And this is what I thought of when I read this quote. It's a quote, some of, I've used it here before, y'all know. It's a good southern quote. If you're not from the south, maybe you've heard it too. But she used to say, little boy, right now you're just getting too big for your britches, right? Now, we ain't called them britches in a long time, but except for my grandmother. You're just getting too big for your britches. So she'd tell me, and I want to tell you this. This is, when I want to, this is the point of all that. If we are going to impact the culture that we're in that has gone haywire. We've got to stop, in many cases, as believers, being too big for our britches. And we've got to learn one simple word that can change everything about the way we communicate with the culture. And that word is humility. We talked about that Daniel had to have resolve. We talked about Daniel was a guy that had to have hope, 
Y'all loved last week's sermon. Y'all came and talked. Well, I love that sermon on hope. We love hope. It's all about hope. But this is one of those sermons I think people are going, I don't know about I like that that much. I love hope. But I don't know that I love humility. I read a quote this week that said this. Daniel's hope gave him courage. But it was a remarkable humility that gave him favor in the eyes of his captors. And what we have in our culture today is a lot of Christians that have courage without humility. And courage without humility leads to either ostracization or martyrdom. Or we've got a lot of people with humility without courage and that leads to spinelessness. What we have to have is the hope in who Jesus Christ is, what he has done and what he will do for us. A settled confidence in the goodness and the sovereignty of God. And at the same time, a humility that looks out for the best interests of others. You, you see, humility is not one of those things in life that we seek. I don't know that I've ever talked to a parent and we say, what do, you, what do you want your child to grow up to be? They go, I just hope they grow up to be humble. A few years ago, I remember, um, in fact, it was 2004, at, at my high school, every, every 10 years, they invite someone from the class 10 years ago to come and speak to their banquet, their honors banquet. And in 2004, I was pastoring in Ripley, and they asked me to come back and speak 10 years later. So I graduated in 1994. So in 2004, I went back to speak. And my, one of the guys, the guy that introduced me was, at that time, he's now the superintendent of Dyersburg Schools, but at that time, he was a vice principal. Um, he was my football coach when I was in school. He was my geography teacher. He was my FCA leader. And so I knew he was going to get up and introduce me. And I thought, man, this is going to be one of those really good introductions, you know? Like, I know Coach Durbin. Coach Durbin can talk, and he, he liked me a lot. This is going to be a really good introduction. And I remember him getting up, and he got up and talked for a minute about, you know, some couple of funny things about me getting clobbered on the football field or something. And, and then he talked about some other things, and then he said, and I want to tell you this. Lyle Larson, when he was in high school, was the most humble person I ever met. You know what I immediately thought? Humble. Can you come up with something better than that? Like, I mean, like smart, like this is the smartest guy I've ever met. This is, I mean, he was the toughest guy I've ever met. Like he was, you know, I mean, that, that wouldn't have been my first choice. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay, don't think of this like, man, I really, I hope if nothing else in life, I become humble. And yet, it's a necessity for doing what God has called us to do. Now, a couple of things before we get into the story. We're going to get there, I promise. A couple of things humility is not, because we kind of get it confused sometimes. Humility is not low self-esteem. Just because you feel bad about yourself doesn't mean you're humble. I can tell you the humblest person that has ever lived on the earth. It's a church. It's not a hard question. It's Jesus, all right? Did Jesus have low self-esteem? He called himself God, right? Now, you can only get away with that if you are and he is, he didn't have slow self-esteem. It's not a lack of ambition. Daniel and his friends didn't have a lack of ambition, but they were humble. It, it's not glossing over or downplaying your accomplishments. Daniel talked about his accomplishments in his writing. Here's what humility is. At its core, humility is serving others. It's placing other people before yourself. The famous quote is, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Even those that don't deserve it, you serve. 
and even more important than that, even your enemies you serve. Let's look at Daniel chapter 4. And we're not going to put all of this up on the screen. We are going to put the first few verses. because Daniel 4, by the way, is one of the most interesting chapters in all of Scripture. And I'll show you why right at the very beginning. King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show you the signs and wonders that the most God, God has done for men. Okay? Quick question. Uh, who's talking here? King Nebuchadnezzar, all right? If you've got your Bibles open, if you've got them sitting there with you, I hope you bring them with you. If you've got them in verse chapter 4, verse 4, I I want you to notice this. It says there, and we're going to get to the rest of verse 2 in just a second, but chapter 4, verse 4 says, I, Nebuchadnezzar. Let me ask you a quick question. Who's writing this chapter of Scripture? What does it say there? Who's writing this? Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I want you to think, just for a minute, before you came in here today, unless you're a biblical scholar and went on Jeopardy with questions like this, if I would have asked you the strangest person to write anything in the Bible, my guess is most of you would not have come up with King Nebuchadnezzar. And yet he writes a chapter in Daniel. Or at least it's his eyewitness testimony, right? Are you here, right? You're colorful today, but you're not responsive, right? Are you there? I wore my purple tie to colorful too, all right? And so this is what he says. I want to tell you what the Most High God has done. Think about where we've come here. This is Nebuchadnezzar. One of the most vile, violent kings in the history of the world. And he starts out and says to everybody, all peoples, all nations and languages that dwell where? That kind of covers it all, right? Peace be multiplied to you. It seems good to me to show you the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for men. Here's the next verse. How great are His signs. How mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. It sounds like we have a psalmist writing in the Psalms, right? This sounds like David. Asaph. This is good praise. And the question comes, well, how did he get there? And it comes all through a dream. Now, we're not going to read every bit of this because it's a long chapter. I encourage you to go back and read it. But I'm going to tell you the story, and then we're going to read a couple of verses in the middle and a couple of verses at the end. Here's what happens. Nebuchadnezzar had dreams that concerned him. You ever have dreams that concern you? How many of you remember your dreams? How many of you never remember your dreams? Greg Yates, that's it. That's all. All right. He's, he's fortunate. You ever have one of those dreams that you wake up and it takes you a couple of minutes to realize that it's just a dream, like something terrible happens or frightening happens or, or whatever? Well, Nebuchadnezzar had those dreams. And in chapter 2, he had a dream that really concerned him and nobody could tell him what it meant except Daniel. So in chapter 4, he has a dream. And I love this because instead of going back to Daniel first, he goes to his advisors and this was his dream. It was this huge tree and it was reaching all the way to the skies. And it was this flourishing good tree and it looked like everything was great. And then a a voice from Ohio came and said, cut it down, tear it apart, burn it, take it off completely. And King Nebuchadnezzar goes to his advisors, what does this mean? And they go, in chapter 2, he, he told them to guess what he even dreamed. In chapter 4, he tells them and they don't know. And he goes to Daniel and he tells Daniel this dream. And this is Daniel's reaction. Then Daniel, also called Belshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time. And his thoughts terrified him. 
So the king said, Belshazzar, this is the king calling him that. In fact, in some translations, when admitted, it'll say, Belshazzar, the king, Nebuchadnezzar says, that's the name I gave him after my gods. In other words, that's not his real name or his real character, but that's what I called him. Don't let the dream of meaning alarm you. Don't, don't worry about it. Just tell me. Tell me what it means. And this is what Daniel says. Belshazzar, or Daniel answered, My Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. Now here's what I want you to see in this, this before we move on. What's the king's name in this, this passage? Who's the king? Nebuchadnezzar. Right? Last week. How many of you were here last week? Let me see your hands. All right, how many of you remember what we talked about last week? Fewer hands. That's good. All right. We talked about three guys, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Who threw them in the fiery furnace? Nebuchadnezzar. Who threatened to kill people if they didn't bow down to his image? Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel, by this point, has spent... Most people think at this point Daniel's around 50 years old. And he has spent probably 30 years of that in Nebuchadnezzar's court, in the court of one of the most violent, evil kings that has ever walked to the earth. In the court of a man who, instead of discussing differences with his enemies, just had them killed. And this is what Daniel says to him. Daniel says, I wish with all my heart I didn't have to tell you what I'm about to tell you. This is what I think is interesting here. Even though Nebuchadnezzar is an enemy of God and an enemy of God's people and runs a nation in a way completely abhorrent to the Most High God, Daniel still cares deeply about the man. You cannot read this chapter of Daniel and not get the sense that Daniel cared for Nebuchadnezzar. He goes to the king and it tells us, remember the verse just before this? He's perplexed. This isn't putting on a show. He is downtrodden. He is upset. He is sick to his stomach. The king says, Daniel, don't worry, just tell me. And he says, I wish I didn't have to. I care too much about you to feel like I can tell you this. This is what he says to him. The tree you saw which grew large and strong with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food, giving shelter, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. Now the reason that's bad is because what Daniel tells him then is that soon he's going to make a decision and God will humble him and he will live Literally like an animal for years. He will go insane and out of his mind and will live like an animal for years. Here's what I want us to see in this, okay? I want you to see the respect that Daniel has for someone who does not believe or act or live according to the ways of God. Can I just be real honest with us here? Can I just be real honest? I'm going to be whether you say yes or no, so that's why I say yes. I sometimes, many times, am floored by the lack of respect that I see coming from people who believe and follow Jesus like I do in their public discourse about the issues and the people in our society. We will not 
impact our culture for Christ without respecting them as people created by God. We will not impact our culture for Christ by degrading people that God has allowed to be set over us in governance. We lose our authority when we do not love and respect even our enemies. This week I read in a book that said, you know, what's interesting is if a missionary goes over to Africa and he befriends the local witch doctor to try to win him for Christ, we put him on a pedestal and we talk about how great that missionary is in crossing the boundaries of his faith in order to lead people to Christ. We take a picture of it, we put it up on our refrigerator and we pray for that missionary and his endeavors. And yet in our country, if someone goes across the aisle to try to talk with someone of a different denomination, of a different political um, affiliation, someone that believes differently, that lives differently, that flaunts their disbelief in our God. If someone walks across the aisle of that, we call him a traitor and we start to blast them from doing it. For instance, I think I've got a picture. It may not be the next one up there, but it should be in there, Steve. This picture was online a few weeks ago. Anybody know who those two guys are? That's Elton John. Anybody know who this is? That's Rick Warren. Now, Elton John and Rick Warren were testifying before the Senate about the crisis of AIDS in Africa and how we as a country can help to prevent the spread of that terrible disease. Rick Warren has been working for years through Christian organizations to spread information and to teach gospel principles and to help people that are with the disease. Elton John, from a different perspective, has been helping with this disease for years. This picture went up online, and if you search, if you put in a search... Rick Warren, Elton John, what you immediately get is 15 websites saying that Rick Warren may be going to hell because he held Elton John's hand. Apostasy. I think the first one that comes up, which you Google Rick Warren, Elton John, the first one that comes up is apostasy. Rick Warren fraternizes with Elton John. Now, let me just say real quickly, all right? I'm not a big fan of Elton John. In fact, I don't... Even if I did know lifestyle choices and all that, I'm not a big fan of his music, just not kind of in my sweet spot of what I like to listen to. And I do not agree with most of what he stands for. But Elton John is not the devil. He is a child born in the image of God who is in desperate need of a Savior. Now, I'm all for standing for principles, but when our principles begin to impact how we're viewed as a culture of believers, then we have to watch ourselves. You know what I think is interesting about Daniel? And we can see this through other stories. Do you know what? Daniel gets punished multiple times in this book, right? There's the, there's the lack of water. There's the, I mean, the, not the lack of water, the, the meat not served to him. There's the his, his Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with the fiery furnace. That's not Daniel. But there's the lion's den. We still got to come when Daniel was older. And yet every time the king who is punishing him wants him to win. Isn't that amazing? I don't think you're right, Daniel, and I've got to punish you. But man, I hope you come out of this alive. I'm going to spoiler alert here if you haven't read Daniel in the lion's den. All right. When he comes out of the lion's den alive, do you know what? The the king has been up all night. It's a different king. Up all night saying, I was hoping your God would save you. It's hard to believe in the society in which we live right now that we have a whole lot of people that 
don't agree with us that are rooting for us to be right. This is a quote this week from a book I read. If we aren't careful, we can say the same mistake Jonah did. You remember Jonah, right? God called him to go, and what did he do? Went the wrong way. Remember, then he goes and he preaches, and what happens? They all repent, and what does Jonah do? Gets mad. That's why I didn't want to preach. God, you'd save them. We make the same mistake Jonah did. He not only hated the sin of the Ninevites, he hated the Ninevites. quote goes on to say this. When our passion for God overrides our compassion for lost people, something has gone terribly wrong. When we've come to the point where we'd rather see judgment than salvation, we are no longer aligned with the heart of God. We've become more like Jonah than Daniel. God didn't call us. I've got to be careful how I say this or somebody's going to get mad. God didn't call us primarily to protect the integrity of a Christian nation. He did not call us to win a culture war. He called us to reach the lost. And any time we get too big for our britches, sometimes we focus on the other things instead of the lost. Daniel respected Nebuchadnezzar. And for us, that doesn't seem like a big deal because we are so distant from it. But if we were living there, and they, you know what? I am sure there were some of Daniel's people that said, you cannot, what are you doing being with him? You shouldn't work there. You shouldn't be around him. Do you know how evil he is? You know what? I'm sure that's what happened. Because it also happened to a guy that walked the earth and hung around sinners and tax collectors. And the Pharisees got really mad about him being with them, right? You see, the reason that we practice humility It's because our ultimate goal is not to win a war. Our ultimate goal is persuasion of people to the cause of Jesus Christ. Look what happens in this story. So all that happens with Nebuchadnezzar. He goes, he gets mad, he lives like an animal for years. And this is what he says at the end. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. Can I tell you something? If Daniel didn't have the compassion and the love and the respect for him, I'm not sure how this would have turned out. But when he comes out of it, he remembers Daniel's words and he remembers Daniel's God. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the people of earth are regarded as nothing. He does as it pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt the glorified, the king of heaven, because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. The last thing means this. Humility for you is coming. You can choose it, or God will do it. The question is, how do you relate to people that don't believe, that don't live according to God's Word? I'm afraid as a Christian culture in America, we are spending a lot of our time screaming at the culture to act like believers when they are not. Instead of compassionately loving them, respecting them, and showing them the better way in Jesus. Let's pray together.